Now, we're going to continue our Bible study called The Grand Scheme of Things. If you've been coming, you know it is a survey from the start of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. We're not sure how long it's going to take, a year and a half, maybe two years, but really tying <laughs> all of this stuff uh, together. Really tonight we see uh, again for the second week and maybe the third week, it is a historical account, uh, the actual telling of God's redemptive plan as it unfolds. Uh, we're going to see some stuff tonight every single week. I think, well, you know what? It's going to get easy next week, or it's going to get easier next week, and it doesn't. This week is just as hard as any of them. Uh, the facts that we're going to look at tonight, honestly, are wild. Uh, they are crazy. They are absurd. A bunch of those, when I, when I go through them studying, you think, I don't remember that account being like that. Uh, I think the best word for some of this stuff is just straight weird. Uh, last week we saw uh, we're trained to like Bible studies in 35-minute bursts. Uh, we want a, a moral point, we want a point of application, and then we want to put it all together and be done with it. Well, these lessons aren't working out like that. One of them's leading into another, one of them's building on the one before, and it really never wraps up and ties up. And so again tonight, uh, we're looking at the historical account. Now understand that. This is the historical record. This is actually what happened. Start of the sheet, it says, oh, what a tangled web we weave when we first practice to deceive. Uh, the theme of the lesson tonight, Jacob the deceiver is terribly deceived himself by his soon-to-be father-in-law. The resulting drama sows discord immediately, and we see that, and then for a multitude of generations to come. Uh, the verses tonight, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 29, Genesis chapter 30, both of those chapters. The key point tonight, once again, God is found at work in the sordid lives of of people, the messed up, crazy lives of people, we find God at work. The Bible showing its transparency reveals God's plan moving forward. Bumps, warts, weirdness, and all. Now, I want to think about that for just a second. Uh, some folks ask the question, is the Bible true? Is the Bible reliable? Is it dependable? Is it trustworthy? And some would say, well, the weirdness of these accounts would prove that it's not. And so here's this situation, and it's a strange situation, and the weirdness of that would prove that the Bible's not dependable. Well, I actually think the opposite of that. Uh, if you were to ask one of us to write an account to impress people, to draw people in, I think most of us would leave most of this stuff out. And we'd say, well, that's not logical. It doesn't make, it doesn't make sense like that. Uh, it's not acceptable by what we think. And so if we were writing this down or somebody else were writing it down, we would leave a lot of this stuff out. Well, you know what? God has nothing to hide. And so he tells us the actual record of what happened. So tonight when we read this account, uh, we read these happenings, I believe it's confirming this is the word of God. He has nothing to hide and he is transparent and reveals it all to us. And so I think that is a good thing that we have this account. All right, we're going we're gonna to break this into to sections. As we start up, uh, I, I want to think about a couple questions that strike me. Now, maybe they strike you as well. They're not in the lesson, but we're going we're gonna to look at them as we pass through the lessons. Uh, as, as we pass through the account, I want us to think about two questions. The first one is this. Does God using sinful situations make him an endorser of sin. 
And so we're going to see some crazy stuff. Well, the fact that God uses a sinful situation, does that make him an endorser of sin? Romans 8, 28 says, and we know God causes all things to work together. Uh, we know he causes, uses all things to work together for good. Well, does God using the fact that he uses sinful situations make him an endorser of sin? Now, here's the second question. Does God using sinful people mean that he's blind to their sin? And so there's a person, and we know that's a, a, a sinful person, a messed up person. The fact that God uses that person does that mean that he has overlooked their sin? Now, when I read this account, I'm thinking that all the way through it. Well, what in the world does, does God approve of this? How can he approve of this? Does he not see their sin? And so those are the questions I want to think about as we pass through our study tonight. Does God using sinful situations make him an endorser of sin? And does God using sinful people mean that he is blind or he has overlooked their sin. Those are real questions. Keep those in mind as we move through the account. All right, starting off, Jacob meets Rachel. Jacob works diligently for the apple of his eye. Genesis chapter 29, verses 1 through 12. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east. He looked and saw a whale in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it. For from the well they watered their flocks. Now the stone on the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, they would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haram. They said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, it is well. And here is Rachel, his daughter, coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered. And they roll the stone away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. Jacob told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. All right, there's a twofold mission uh, in Jacob leaving. Remember, the first one is Esau, his brother, is intent on killing him. In fact, Esau says, when our dad dies, when the opportunity's right, I'm going to kill you. So one of the reasons he leaves is to escape the wrath of his brother. The second reason is to find a wife. Uh, in the land that they're in, in the Canaan land, uh, all that are there are pagan uh, women. And so they wanted to send him back to the land of their people and let him find a wife out of that set of folks. And so for two reasons, he leaves the land. Uh, one of them is to escape his brother. The other is to go find a wife. He sees Rachel. And I, I read that account, and, 
And it's not time to roll the stone away. The other guys aren't going to roll it away. They're not going to help her. He rolls the stone away. She waters her sheep. It says he kisses her. He lifts up his voice, which means he shouts, and he actually begins to weep. Uh, He's blown away by Rachel. All right, chapter 29, verses 13 through 20. And she ran and told her father, into verse 12, so when Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Then he related to Laban all these things. Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you're my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. All right, he says he's going to be staying there. What should your pay be? He says, I see Rachel, I love Rachel, and they make a deal. I'll work seven years for your youngest daughter, Rachel. Now I want to read verse 18 again. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years For your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, I want you to see in verse 18, it is clear the deal that he's making. Uh, It's not uh, ambiguous. It is very clear. He is working seven years for Rachel. And so, it's it's not misunderstood. It's very clear. The second thing, see, the terms of the deal are set by Jacob. Laban doesn't come up with that. Jacob says, I'll work seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel, and that will be our deal. So it is a clear thing. That is verse 18. He loves Rachel. He works those seven years. The Bible says it goes by like like days in his perspective because of his love for Rachel. He's excited about marrying Rachel. All right, next section. What have you done? Laban's great deception. Chapter 29, beginning in verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my time is completed that I may go into her. Laban gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. Now in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to him, and Jacob went into her. Laban also gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came about in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? But Laban said, it is, is it not the practice? It is not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also for the service for which you shall serve me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week, and he gave him her, his daughter Rachel as his wife. Laban also gave his maid Billah to his daughter Rachel as her maid. 
So Jacob went into Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban another seven years. All right, this is, this is where the account probably starts to come undone, uh, becomes pretty weird. Uh, remember, in a, remember the context here. Jacob is the great deceiver. His name actually means deceiver. Remember, he tricks his brother out of his birthright and his blessing. What's interesting, now the great deceiver has been deceived. He's been tricked. Now, I think it's interesting, Laban says, well, here we honor the birthright. Here we honor the birth order. And so the exact same thing he did, he cut the line. Now his excuse is, well, we go by the birth order. Now, that wasn't the deal they made. It was deceptive. I, I think about that. Uh, Laban is very prudent in what he does. He has two daughters. He wants them both married. He wants them both taken care of. Yet he is deceptive in what he does. When asked about it, he says, well, we go by the birth order, and you have to marry the old, eldest one first. He says, what is this you have done to me? He is tricked. He's astounded. Now, I thought about that, and, and I'll just tell you, that, that sounds pretty, pretty crazy that he takes one wife, and after the wedding night, he's been tricked, and it's Leah. It's the other sister. And I, I look into that and go, is that actually possible? Is that possible for that to happen? Well, here's what I found in the culture. She would be heavily veiled. She would have always been heavily veiled. And on their wedding night, she would have been heavily veiled. Here's the, there's about four things. The second thing is this, and this might have as much to do with it as that. At the wedding feast, there is much alcohol. So she is heavily veiled. There is much alcohol at the wedding feast. Uh, the third thing, at the, the, the tent of consummation, it is completely dark. So there's a, the third thing. And then I came up with this one. He had worked for seven years he was probably very excited about who was in the tent. So he can't see, she's veiled, they've been drinking, and he's very excited about this evening. He wakes up the next day and he says, what is this you've done to me? He has been tricked. He has been fooled. All right, it's going to get weirder. A growing family, chapter 29, verses 31 through 35. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he therefore has given me this son also. So she named him Simeon, verse 34. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore he was named Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Now we're going we're to proceed through this. I want you to see what's happened up until this point. He loves Rachel. He's married to both of them, but he loves Rachel. Most likely, all of his attention would have been placed on Rachel. Leah's there. Leah is his wife. 
but his attention is placed on Rachel. However, with time, it becomes apparent she's not going to have a child. And he needs an heir. He would like a son. And so the fact that, that Rachel's not able to have children, he now turns his attention to Leah. Now, I want you to see how, how strange and really kind of messed up that is. But now his attention has turned to Leah. Leah has three sons. The Bible says at that point she stopped, has four sons. And then the Bible says at that point she stopped having children. All right, let's go chapter 30, starting in verse 1. The end of the chapter, then she stopped bearing. Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister. And she said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel. And he said, I, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? She said, here is my maid Billah. Go into her that she may bear on my knees that through her I too may have children. Let me stop there for a second. It was not unusual if the wife was not able to have an heir, was not able to have a child, it was pretty common in their cultures, not saying it's right, for the wife to give her maid to the husband to produce an heir. Really, it was a surrogate. It says, at my knees. Now, here's what that looks like. The wife would have been at the birth. At the birth, the child is taken from the surrogate mother, the maid, and placed on the knees of the wife. She becomes an heir through that means. And so that's what happens. She said, here's my way, maid, Billa. Go into her that she may bear on my knees, and that through her I too may have children. So she gave him her maid, Billa, as a wife. And Jacob went into her. Billa conceived, and she bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me, and has indeed heard my voice, and given me a son. Therefore she named him Dan. Rachel's maid, Billa, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. So Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister, and I have indeed prevailed. And she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took her maid, Zilpah. All right, she's not able to have kids now. And so she takes her maid and says, you can produce with her. She took her maid Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. He now has four wives. Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, how fortunate. So she named him Gad. Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, happy am I, for women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. Now in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben... This is the son of Leah, went out and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. All right, this is a, a strange episode. Let me explain it. A mandrake is a flowering plant. It makes a smell. You can smell it. Uh, in the Song of Solomon, it says that they go out into the garden and there's fruits and vegetables and there are mandrakes growing. If you pull up this plant, it has a giant shriveled up root that they say looked like an infant, looked like a baby. So the tradition was uh, this plant could be used for reproductive health, for fertility health. And that was the tradition. 
Well, her son Reuben goes to the harvest. He doesn't go looking for this thing, but he finds this flower. He pulls it up. It has a root. Here's the deal. He knows the issue going on at home. Now, my mom has ceased having children. We've got the maids now. They're having children. And so he says, I'll take this root home to my, to my mother, and perhaps it'll help her issue with fertility. That's a crazy account. <laughs> now, it's, I, I don't want to... When I was a kid, I don't know what grade we studied part of this, I kept thinking mandrakes sound a lot like pancakes. And so I thought, well, that's a lot of trading going on for some pancakes. But Now in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, now remember Rachel's got a problem, she's not having children either. And so she says to Leah, please give me some of your mandrakes. But she said to her, it is a small matter for you to take my husband, and would you take my son's mandrakes also? They're a rare commodity. So Rachel said, therefore, he may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field in the evening, then Leah went out to meet him and said, now, at this point, Jacob is no longer spending time with Leah. So her feelings are hurt. He's spending all of his time with Rachel and the other, the other maids. And so she actually doesn't even wait for him to get in the house. She meets him in the yard. And in the original language, she actually says, I have purchased you. I have bought you. When Jacob came in from the field in the evening, then Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. God gave heed to Leah. And she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. And so she named him Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. And God gave heed to her and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord give me another son. All right, we're going we're to stop right there in our verses. At this point, here's what Jacob has. Jacob has four wives. Now, the two wives that were maids were considered lesser wives. They were counted as part of the household. They would be taken care of as part of the household. So he has four wives. He has 11 sons. He has one daughter. Now, these sons, there's going to be an additional one, are going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, do you see how crazy this is, how this account is, is just absurd? These sons from these wives are going to become the, the 12 tribes of Israel. Levi, the son of, of Leah, from him is going to become the priestly class. Judah, the son of Leah, from him is going to come Christ, Jesus. This is actually through Judah, the family tree of Jesus. Is that not the wildest thing ever? Is that not the wildest thing ever? Go back to those two questions. Does God 
using sinful situations, make him an endorser of sin. And you know what? There, there's folks that, that believe in polygamy because of these accounts. Does God using sinful situations make him an endorser of sin? Does God using sinful people mean that he is blind to their sin, that he, he has chosen to overlook their sin? All right, we're going to go back to the account, and I'm going to try to put all that together. What appears to be a greatest situation from the outside is revealed to be something else upon closer examination. Now, next week we're going to talk about when Jacob decides to travel home. Well, I want you to picture this. When Jacob decides to go home, when he packs up, um, he has four wives, 12 kids, a whole bunch of sheep, a whole bunch of donkeys. Um, he's got goats that are countless. He has prospered. Chapter 30, verse 43. So the man became exceedingly prosperous, and he had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. He was prosperous. So when he goes home, he decides to leave, and he, he takes off. If you were to look and see him, here's this guy, and here's his four wives, and here's all these people that work for him, and here's all these animals, and here's all these donkeys, and here's all these camels, and we know God is going to use him. He's, he's going back to the promised land. We know God is going to use him. Here's, here's the question. Aren't there a lot of issues kind of sticking out of the account right there? And I, I was sitting there going, I don't know that I ever heard anybody address that. I think we just moved quickly across it. Uh, in, our, in our kids' classes, I, I feel for Brennan right now trying to teach a version of this right now, Marco, a version of this. Uh, we, we just kind of gloss over. We miss a lot of stuff. As adults, we really just go, well, that's just what it says, and we move on. But it doesn't it seem to be some issues sticking out. Jacob has four partners. Is that a problem? Polygamy. Is that a problem? Is God okay with polygamy? Well, he's going to use the product of polygamy to make the 12 tribes of Israel. There seems to be this question, is all of this God's plan? And that, that, that kind of bothers me to go, well, does he okay sin? Does he use sin? Does he approve sin? What does it mean that, that this is going on? Is that his plan or is it not his plan? And, and really, I, I try to piece together an answer. And here's one version of an answer. Now, there is an answer. But here's one version of an answer, one way we can come to a conclusion and that is to, to actually see what is going on here. I call it the fruit inspector. What comes out of these situations? What is the product of these situations? And that's what I want us to look at. We can, we can look at some other verses, but I want you to see what actually comes out of this situation when we look at it more closely. All right, let me tell you a couple things. First is this. In Genesis... Let's talk about polygamy for a second. In Genesis, when marriage is given and described by God, marriage is singular. There is a single male. There is a single female. And that is, that is the pattern for marriage uh, starting with the very first couple. And so we can be sure. You know what? how this started? Marriage is singular. 
All right? In the book of Matthew, when Jesus is asked about marriage, and he goes back and references the verses in Genesis, again, as Jesus speaks, marriage is singular. He shall leave his mother, singular, and father, singular, and be joined to his wife, singular. And so in the original, it is singular. It's a husband and a wife. When Jesus reteaches on it in Matthew, it is singular, a husband and a wife. So that is God's plan. Be sure of that. That is God's plan. All of this, what is the product? What is the fruit of all of this? Let me point some stuff out to you. In chapter 29, verse 31, it says, Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. And I just, I just started making a list here. Now picture this. Leah is unloved. And, and that's not her take on it. That's not what she thinks. That's what God says. And God sees that Leah is unloved. I want you to start picturing her. You know what? She's second best at best. You know what? She's unloved. She's not the desire of her husband. She has to get up in the morning. She has to know that, understand that. She has to go through the day. She is unloved. All right, that's verse 31. Verse 32, she says, the Lord has seen my affliction. Leah says that. The Hebrew word for affliction means misery. He, the Lord has seen my misery. A, 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 a deep understanding, not just affliction, misery. She is saying, Leah is saying this, she is miserable, absolutely miserable. She is unloved. Because she's unloved, she is miserable. Verse 32, it says, surely now my husband will yearn, will love me. And so, you know what? She's miserable. She's unloved. And now she has this work system. If I give him a son, he's going to love me. And if I give him another son, then he's going to love me. Surely my husband is going to love me. She yearns for the attention, the affection of her husband. Now picture her, unloved, miserable, grieved, trying to find some answer. Surely now my husband will love me. Verse 34, she says, I've had three sons. Now he might be attached to me. Maybe he'll give me his attention. So do you see how heartbroken she is? Picture her unloved, miserable, thinking she can work it off, thinking she can do something to earn it. All right, that's Leah. So here we go. Here's the camp. We get a little bit closer and we see Leah and she's absolutely miserable there in the camp. All right, chapter 30, let's switch over to Rachel. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became, verse one, jealous of her sister. And so, you know what? Here's two sisters, and now there's jealousy. There's not peace. There's not harmony. She is jealous of her sister. Now, how much do you think that grows with one son and two sons and three sons? She can't stand it. She is jealous of her sister. And she said to Jacob, same verse, give me children or else I die. Now, I don't know if she's suicidal, but evidently this is so big of a thing that she'd rather be dead. And you know what? If I can't produce an heir, if if that's not the relationship we're going to have, she says she'd rather be dead. Give me children or else I die. Leah's miserable. What do you think Rachel is? 
she's miserable too, all right? In verse 2, chapter 30, verse 2, she says, give me children or else I die. It says, and Jacob's anger burned toward Rachel. Now, I went and looked that up in the original language. He had a burst of fiery rage towards Rachel. All right, it wasn't that long ago that he worked seven years and it seemed like nothing because he loved Rachel so much. And so now here at the happy house, she's miserable, she's jealous, and she's miserable, and now he has a burning rage toward his wife, Rachel. And that's the condition of their house, a burning rage, not just a, a short thing. All right, verse 6, she says, Rachel says, God has vindicated. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me and indeed heard my voice. Vindicated means um, she's been paid back. And so now she seeks vengeance. She seeks payback. And that's how she sees this, this house, this situation. She's been vindicated. All right, verse 8, continuing on. She says in verse 8, so Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I've wrestled with my sister. And so it's not just a, a small feud. They are fighting. They are against each other. They're, they're opposed to each other. And so, so we've got her, and she's upset, and she's jealous, and she needs to be vindicated, and she's seeking retribution, and she's been fighting with her sister. And then in verse 14, the crazy story with the mandrakes Reuben, the son, if you try to add the years up, we're not sure exactly how it falls. He's not a small kid, but he's, but he's not very old either. Evidently, he knows the drama of the house, that my mom has not been able to have any more sons, and now Jacob, my dad's mad, and now the, the, this is happening. And so he's so concerned as a small boy, he goes out and finds this root and thinks he's going to help the cause. You know what? This thing has upset the whole house. Even the kids are upset. Even the kids have no peace. So he, he finds this mandrake to take to her. Verse 20, Leah then says again, maybe now my husband will dwell with me, will attach to me. Maybe after all of this, maybe this is the son that he will attach with me. Verse 23, Rachel says, now that she has a son, God has taken away my reproach. It means that she was absolutely ashamed of her life, of her position, of how her life turned out. She is ashamed of her life. Think about this. In this home, when you see him from afar, man, look at this guy. He's got four wives and he's got workers and he's got donkeys and camels and sheep and he is wealthy. And you see that, but you get close to the house, and here's what the house looks like. Anger, guilt, shame, jealousy, deceit, revenge. Doesn't that sound like garbage is a way to live? They're mad, and they're mad, and he's mad, and they're mad, and they're undercutting, and they're jealous, and they're seeking revenge. All of those things are evident in this house, just in that one chapter. Here's my question. Are those the things of God? No, that's not what God intends. He, he doesn't want your house to have anger and jealousy and rage and deceit. Those are not the things of God. Guess what would have happened if they'd have stuck to God's plan? 
the things of God would have been evident in their house. You know what? When you find the things that are not of God evident in the house, somebody has deviated from the plan. So here's the question. Does God approve of this? Well, look at the consequences. Is this, is this okay in his sight? Look at the consequences. Here's the truth, and it's weird we see it again this week, and we see it a couple weeks in a row. Sin always brings trouble. Well, it looks good from the outside. Well, the other folks are doing it. Well, it's okay in the culture. Sin always brings trouble. And then here's this. Trouble always escalates. You ever see a fight that just naturally tapers out? No, it, it, they flare up. You ever see jealousy that they go, well, I'm not so jealous any longer? It always escalates. And here's, here's the wrap up for the whole thing. In all of this craziness, sinfulness, weirdness, and all of this, people are sinful and people are crazy. And guess what? God is faithful. I, I wonder then and I wonder now how many times God has to say to me, I'm, I'm tired of these people. I'm tired of, of dumb choices. I'm, I'm tired of sin that hurts people. And yet we see here, God is faithful. God is gracious. God is kind. And in this, his plan is moving forward. And there is a son named Judah. And out of that tribe, one day there'll be a savior named Jesus. He is faithful and he moves his plan forward. And for all sinners, there's going to be hope because God is faithful. People are weird. People are dumb. People are, are, are terrible and they're sinners. But you know what? God is faithful. He moves his plan forward. Yes, turning a sinful situation to good. Yes, using sinful people to move his plan forward. Last week we said it and it comes true again tonight. If God's not going to use sinful people in his plan, guess what? He's not going to use any people. And that's how he provides a savior for sinners, our savior, Jesus. I'm going to end it right there. I'm glad you're here. I'm going to ask if you'll stand. I'll lead us in a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Glad you're here tonight. Let's pray. Dream Father, we come and we're thankful for your word and we're thankful you're not trying to, to shuffle it around, not trying to hide something from us, but that your word is true and your word holds true. And that in this, we see the need for a savior. We see the hope for sinners and, and we see your plan of redemption is based upon not us, but on your faithfulness. Lord, I pray for our kids that are learning tonight I pray that a simple peace is put into place that will stand in the hard days that are ahead in a world that's going to pull them every which way. I, I pray that tonight a peace is put into our kids that will stand, that will endure a peace of the truth. I pray for our youth tonight in, a, in, a, in a, again, a strange world that would, that would pull them aside. I pray that tonight the truth is put in, the truth is stacked upon, and it matters moving forward. And then I pray for us tonight that we have grown, that we have learned, that we have been encouraged, and that we understand your grace and your kindness all through your faithfulness. Lord, I pray for the folks here tonight, those listening on the internet, I pray that you bless them, encourage them, grow them. And I pray that our, uh, our response will be point to you and bring glory to you. We love you and we thank you. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.